Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello and welcome to this Institute for Government podcast special. Uh, I'm Catherine Haddon, Senior Fellow at the Institute for Government. Now, Boris Johnson's latest reset of 10 Downing Street kicked off in dramatic fashion last week with the announcement that four of his senior advisers were quitting. And then it was out with the old and in with the, well, familiar faces. Steve Barclay, the senior minister in the Cabinet Office, replaces Dan Rosenfield as Chief of Staff. Keto Harry, Johnson's spinner from his time as Mayor of London, comes in as Director of Communications. And Andrew Griffith, another MP and longtime Johnson cheerleader, takes over the policy unit from Anira Mirza, whose resignation was the most dramatic of all. So what do these appointments tell us about the problems and solutions for Johnson's number 10? Can a change of staff save a prime minister? And what does this tell us about the long-standing problems of number 10 and what makes for an effective prime minister? To discuss these questions and more, I'm sure, I'm joined by three people who know more than most about how number 10 works and why things go wrong. Gavin Barwell, now Lord Barwell, was Theresa May's Chief of Staff from 2017 to 2019 and is the author of Chief of Staff, Notes from Downing Street, his account of what this particular job means. Hi, Gavin. Hi, pleasure to be with you. Uh, And Kate Fall, Baroness Fall, was Deputy Chief of Staff during David Cameron's Premiership and the author of The Gatekeeper, Life at the Heart of Number 10, another great book. Hi, Kate. Hi. Uh, And we've also got the IFG's own Alex Thomas, an expert in all things about the levers of power. Hi, Alex. Hi, Kath. I'm in very exalted authorial company. <laughs> You're waiting for your book. Only a matter of time. Only a matter of time. <laughs> Only a matter of time. Uh, let's start then with how the changes played out and the problems we think they're supposed to solve. Gavin, just turning to you first, we were expecting some departures in the fallout from the interim Sue Gray report, but then we had Munira Mirza's resignation letter citing in particular one of the PM's attack lines on Keir Starmer. We won't go into that too much. Um then there seemed to be a rapid cover operation with other departures hastily announced. What did you make of it all? Yes, I think you can you can split them into three, I think. Uh, Manira and one of her team in the policy unit clearly resigning on principle because they couldn't defend what the Prime Minister had done. I think that resignation was a huge blow to him, one of his longest standing uh, aides. And it told us something that we hadn't previously been sure about. A lot of the speculation about what's been going on in Number 10 is is the problem that there wasn't anyone there telling the Prime Minister what he needed to hear, or was he being told and he just wasn't listening to the advice? Mm. What Manira's letter told us was that at least in relation to what he had to say about Keir Starmer, he was told clearly not to do it, and he still went ahead and did it. Um, then I think uh, it felt to me like Jack Doyle had had sort of made up his mind for personal reasons that he, he wanted to call time uh, on working there. And then it felt like the other two departures, Dan Rosenfeld um, and... Uh, the principal private secretary, uh, Martin, that uh, they were brought forward to try and uh, make the story a bit better for number 10. If it had just been focused on Manira's letter, clearly it would have been much more difficult uh, in presentational terms. So I think three slightly different factors at play there in terms behind the different resignations. And, and certainly uh, Jack uh, and Martin and Dan, I think probably were going to go at some point anyway in relation to the the promises the Prime Minister had made to reshape Number 10 uh, off the back of the Partygate scandal, whereas I'm sure Manira would not have been one of the people that would have departed as part of that. Yeah. Um, Kate, I mean, you were serving a Prime Minister in coalition. Johnson has a majority, but a very different party now to Cameron in some respects. 
Is there some of this about the context in which government happens? I mean, you know, is there anything that you experienced in your time in Number 10 that really compares to what is going on at the moment and the focus on how Number 10 is operating? Um, what struck me about it uh, in particular is this is a sort of own goal. There's no, normally um, governments end because they lose the big argument that they're trying to win, whether it's the parliament or the country. But this is not an argument about the big issue and about leadership. It, it just seems a sort of uh, an own goal. And what I feel, I, I really agree with what Gavin's saying. And I, I sense, as well as that, um, a real factionalism, a sense that no one has each other's backs at the, at the heart of government and, and in number 10. And I certainly feel grateful for the time I was there that, of course, we didn't get everything right, but we, in general, supported one another and we were one team and we had a solidarity of purpose and we were there to support the, the Prime Minister. There, there wasn't really factionism. So it strikes me as being a very difficult working environment. And I, I felt you know, quite sorry for quite a lot of people involved. And there's a sort of uneasy sense of, I wouldn't go so far to say scapegoating, but there's, you know, there's still Sue Gray, Gray Day hangs over, doesn't mm. it? Because we've had the first one. But it's not all over. And my worry is all of this means, you know, Gavin and I, the jobs we did, essentially you're there to support the Prime Minister, run the country. And to do that, you need to have an environment for good decision making. Um, And it strikes me, number 10 at the moment, you need to try and get back to creating an atmosphere of good decision making. Mm. Well, I mean, you mentioned scapegoating there, Alex. I mean, this was kicked off by... Gray's interim report, as, as Kate was saying, uh, she talked a bit about unclear accountability and failures of leadership. I mean, is this a fair response? Does this feel like scapegoating, you know, or or is there actually time for change and, uh, you know, a need for people to move on? Well, I think it's, it's, it's difficult to know yet, I think, the answer to the scapegoating question. I mean, it had become inevitable that Dan Rosenfeld and Martin Reynolds, uh, the Chief of Staff and PPS were moving on because they'd become so implicated in this story. Uh, so I think that was inevitable uh, and we'll know in, in the course of time whether it was uh, fair or not. One of the things that uh, struck me just listening to Kate and Gavin there, and they, they, they might tell me I'm wrong, but was almost a sort of sense of sadness coming out from what the, how they were describing the situation at the moment. And I've heard that from quite a few people that this sort of uh, an exalted building and office uh, that uh, is so important to how the country runs has been drawn in to uh, what is at the same time a, a quite a profound, you know, those who make the rules shouldn't break the rules, but also a sort of petty series of scandals. And there is something, I, I, I sort of reacting to sitting in a, in, a, in a room for the first time in a while recording one of these podcasts to, 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 to hearing what others are, are saying. And I think that's quite an interesting thing that also came out actually in, to go to your question, in, in, in Sue Gray's report when she talked about a culture, uh, not, not the sort of tabloid headlines of excessive drinking, but a culture of uh, lack of accountability and the, the point that Sue actually made in, in, in the report most strongly was that Number 10 had grown quite a lot. And it's grown even since Gavin mm. and Kate's day and certainly since the sort of Number 10 of the 80s and 90s. Uh, and uh, I think it's a fair response from the Prime Minister and others to seek to look at the management and organisational structures in Number 10. But that's very much the sort of second issue after the leadership questions that were also highlighted in, mm. in Sue's report. So I think... Um, uh, it's 
it's, it's a fair response, but it's only one very small part of the overall response. Um, on that point, I mean, you know, for a lot of people looking from the outside, they must be a bit confused about this, the whole question of who is in charge in number 10. Um, I mean, Alex, first, perhaps you could do a bit of an explainer for people. Like we've got chiefs of staff, we've got, you know, principal private secretary, we're talking about permanent secretaries and so forth. I mean, what's your view on who is the person who should be in charge of number 10? You could say it's the prime minister. I don't know. Um, well, and then Gavin, Kate, I'm going to ask you who was the actual person in charge when you were there? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll start off. You've, you've stolen my glib answer, which is <laughs> obviously it's the prime minister. Um, uh, so let's let's sort of bank that that one. And it, you know, he's the prime minister. The, the, the prime minister sets the tone uh, for uh, number ten and and the whole of the centre of government. So it's really important to keep that in mind. Then there are a number of um, uh, uh, of, of different sort of confusingly titled individuals. Uh, and Kath, I've heard you make the point that one of the keys to understanding number 10 is that it is a government operation and it's a political operation. And I think mm. that gets to the heart of who does what job. So there's somebody called a chief of staff that uh, uh, Gavin was, and Kate's deputy chief of staff. They're the um, uh, principal political advisor to the prime minister. They have all sorts of influence over policy uh, and the decisions that the prime minister makes. But in the end, that's the kind of uh, root of their job. And there's a principal private secretary or sometimes a permanent secretary. And they get on to talk about that. That's the um, uh, civil service head of number 10. And when you're in number 10, people talk about the house in a way the, that the principal private secretary uh, runs the house. Uh, mm -hmm. And the, not just the private office and the other civil servants who are dealing with sort of policy questions, but also the security, the doorkeepers, the, um, uh, the, the all the sort of administration that goes into a, uh, a head of government's uh, office. Uh, and I expect Gavin to make this point, so I won't steal this under too much because I've, I've, I've heard him make this before. But if the principal private secretary or permanent secretary and the chief of staff are working hand in glove, completely together, seamlessly sitting in the same room, that's when the number 10 operation uh, works well. And all the other jobs that you hear about the policy unit and the press office and the, uh, the, the other sort of great um, uh, sort of intense jobs that go on in number 10 hang off that relationship, I think. Mm. I mean, it strikes me as something you were saying earlier, I think, Kate, about the factions, that there's two dimensions to this. One is how much the chief of staff role is looking upwards and looking downwards, i.e. how much you're managing the principal, the prime minister, and how much you're actually controlling the team and, and siphoning things up to the prime minister. But then there's also these different factions. So if the policy unit and the comms unit are all off doing their own thing, you end up with these different people in, in clashing with each other. I mean, your book, Kate, The the Gatekeeper, I mean, that moniker, I think, was given to you because that is a key role, isn't it, is actually managing the principal, the prime minister, and controlling who sees them. I mean, is that part of the problem here that they're struggling, you know, with how to manage that versus how to manage the team? Well, I think that bringing up the, the double gatekeeper is a, is a good point about Man, good management at the centre because it's essentially done properly about the Prime Minister's priorities, the time the Prime Minister takes over what issues. And then it's all about also who's in the room when those decisions are made. And those two are absolutely critical. Jeremy Hayward was actually a great teacher to me in this. He, he really understood what are the Prime Minister's priorities for next week, he'd say to me when I first got there. So that's a slightly different than thinking, oh, what's the diary? How do we manage it? So very important job. But I, I would also say, say this, is that the the, the um, chief of staff role, deputy, whatever, I mean, Ed and I, um, it's a box and cops between us, is about being at the centre and bringing together a lot of very talented people to work together in tandem. 
in in also alongside the officials. But then you have another role in number ten, which is to be a, a, an advisor to the prime minister, and and that and you sort of earn your place at the table, if you like. Um, as an advisor, because you have this important role, but you 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 need to do both at the same time. You you, and I think sometimes people maybe forget that that mm. you know you're not just there to say this is what I think, Prime Minister. You're also there to make sure the comms is running, the speeches are done. There's time to strategize the firefighting, the running of the country, the where we're going next. Those sort of three parts all come together. Gavin, was it you know similar in your time? Were you the person in charge ultimately, or or was it very much a team effort? So I think I think Alex, having read the book, has has uh, covered very well what, how I would answer <laughs> it. I look, <laughs> I am um, well. I obviously arrived at a moment of crisis in the prime minister called an election, expecting to win it big, and and then lost her majority. And the mood in number ten was very bad. Uh, I think the way my predecessors had run it, maybe inadvertently, people, it was not a happy place. Mm. So the first job that I felt I had was to get that mood right, to change the culture very quickly. And because ultimately my time there was a failure, Teresa doesn't like me saying this, but my job as chief of staff was to keep her in number 10 and I, I couldn't do it. The thing I'm probably most proud of to a degree is that despite the enormous political pressure we're under, we were a team and we stayed a team right until the end. And there were, the cabinet was falling out with each other left, right and centre, but the staff didn't. And so my view was that nobody should be able to put a piece of cigarette paper between Peter Hill, who was the principal private secretary, and myself, that we mm. kind of set the tone together in the building. Uh, and I think he probably allowed me to do a bit more than some other principal private secretaries have allowed chiefs of staff to do. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we very much operated as, as a team. And I thought that the key thing really with number 10 is to get the political team and the civil service team working effectively together. Then I think there's one very distinct role that as chief of staff and and Jojo, who was my deputy, I think very much like Kate and Ed kind of boxed and cox, but I found that the system, cabinet ministers, senior civil servants, were incredibly respectful of the prime minister's private time. Once the prime minister had left the office and gone up to the flat, people didn't really bother her. They weren't quite so respectful of the chief of staff. So (laughs) I would like during the day and in the evenings and at weekends, I would just get this. If I was in the office, people queuing up at my desk or people phoning me up and I would kind of function like the Oracle at Delphi. People would say, I want to do this. Do you think the PM would be okay with that? And so your, your job was to know the prime minister's mind so well that you could be confident in 90, 95% of cases of saying, yeah, that's okay. No, I think she wouldn't like that. You know, or maybe this is something, something if you did the, the key, I think, the one piece of advice I would give to anybody doing that job is if you do not know what the Prime Minister thinks about something, do not guess. Because the moment you give a false answer, the moment you – my usefulness to the civil service was to be able to answer those questions. And the moment you got something wrong and you'd given a false steer, no one was ever going to come and ask you again. Mm. Well, let's move on to talking about uh, the possible solutions and, and whether or not we think this reset is going to do the job. Um, I mean, Gavin, let's start with – Steve Barclay, he's been brought in as a successor in your role, the chief of staff. But this is a bit of a surprise because he's also a minister. He's he's going to be two desks, uh, one one in cabinet office and one in number 10. It kind of feels to me that they're doubling up your role with Liddington, a political chief of staff with a ministerial fixer. Is that how it seems to you? Yes. 
so look, first of all, I need to do I need to do a declaration of interest. So Steve is a close personal friend of mine, and I think if you look at this appointment in terms of personal qualities, he's smart. Uh, he's incredibly diligent. All of the papers that come to him will get read and properly understood. He's quite tough in a, in a sort of expecting high standards kind of way, but a, a good person. So I think in personal quality terms, good appointment. Uh, the reality, which I think he completely understands, is there is no way he is going to be able to do the job in, in which I or Ed Llewellyn or Jonathan Powell did it. It's impossible. You know, for me, mm. virtually every waking hour of my life for two and a bit years was spent doing this job. And he's not because he's both an MP, he's got a constituency he's got to look after and he's got ministerial responsibilities. He's going to have to be in the House sometimes answering questions. There's no way he is going to be able to do that job in the same way. It doesn't mean that he can't find a way of making it work. And it's not an exact parallel, but there is a bit of a parallel in the German system where the, there is a cabinet minister who sort of heads the chancellery. Uh, and effectively, I was always told that's the person who's your equivalent as chief of staff. So they were a elected politician with a constituency, um, but also sort of working to the chancellor. So uh, I think it's possible to make it work as a system, but not in the way that it worked under the Blair and Cameron uh, and May governments. And, uh, and I think your description of me plus David Lidington essentially is a, is, is a fair description of what he's being asked to do. Mm. Kate, I mean, this almost sounds then that the day-to-day man-marking of the Prime Minister will fall far more to the Deputy Chiefs of Staff. We have had one model where we had Joint Chiefs of Staff in Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill. Is that probably more likely what we're going to see? Um, I think it'd be interesting to see how it works out in practice, because if, if Steve is a political animal, he will go where the politics is and where the power is. And if that means spending more time in number 10, I'm sure that's where he will tend to gravitate. I mean, for me, I, 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 two things really struck me. One is, I think the confusion is as well, is that as a chief of staff or deputy, whatever it is, your power only comes from the prime minister. You're not elected by anyone else. Your time, your, you know, your, you are there with them, and when they go, you will leave with them. Now that isn't the same for an elected politician. They will do their best, but in the end, they will still be in parliament when, when the prime minister, if the prime minister leaves. So I think that that is a very different sort of political journey and a relationship. Um, and I think the other thing I would say is um, I remember when David Cameron made Michael Gove his um, chief whip, which wasn't the most successful appointment <laughs> as it turned out. He, he said to Michael, I want you to be Hand of the King. You know, think Game of Thrones, who were always quite obsessed by, by that series at the time. And I think where it became difficult was number 10 is a brilliant machine, but it operates really under one person's operation. And when it gets confused, is if it has two political minds that aren't completely aligned. Now, with David, I mean, to a certain extent, George Osborne and he had a sort of co-premiership, but they were almost always aligned. And when they weren't, they sorted it out by walking around the garden. But when Michael came in, another, a brilliant political mind, but not actually totally aligned with David. And that's when things began to get, you know, number 10 got rather confused. So again, it will be really interesting to see whether that sort of works out at the centre. Yeah, I mean, that's something else that's been striking me. I mean, Dominic Raab has obviously grabbed all the titles, so he's Deputy Prime Minister and First Secretary of State. But in, a, in essence, 
you know, Barclay's heading towards that deputy prime minister role. So I, I hear what you're saying, Gavin, but is there a danger that the Barclay thinks, well, actually, I think it should be done differently and in, instead is arguing his point of view rather than, I was always very struck by your, it's, you know, the key word is staff. It's about yeah. staffing the prime minister. Whereas, uh, you know, I wonder having a minister in the role, whether you start to get into the kind of chief part of the role a bit much and it's, it's yeah. very seductive. So I think Kate's put it brilliantly. So the, the question when Steve speaks in a meeting, is he speaking as the chief of staff to the prime minister or mm. is he speaking as a cabinet minister who might perfectly legitimately have a slightly different political position to the prime minister? So, you know, I had to in, internally in meetings, I would sometimes say I would sometimes challenge what the prime minister is saying as a sort of internal discussion point. But if she wasn't in the room, I would always be representing her view mm. of what she wanted done. So he's going to have to work that through and he's going to have to think about that really carefully in the house and in, or when he's doing media interviews. You know, the media are going to love this mm. because they're not just going to be able to interview Steve and ask him his opinion on things or what the government line is. But they're going to ask him for things that haven't been announced yet. Well, you can tell us what the prime minister thinks because you know. Uh, and he's going to get asked questions. I'm sh- I, I absolutely guarantee you that the House of Commons is not going to limit itself to asking him about his ministerial responsibilities. He's going to get asked questions because they've got the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff at the dispatch box that they can question. So he's going to have to really carefully delineate at any point in time which hat he's wearing. Mm. I mean, Alex, that point, isn't it, that everyone needs to know who is the sort of centre of the galaxy and who to, to listen to. That's also true of the civil service. Um, I mean, Gray talked about in her report, she said that, you know, one of the problems was confused lines of accountability. It um, it feels a bit like we're heading towards continuing confused. What do you think the civil service will make of it? Yeah, I think it's, uh, I'm, I remember reading this about Thatcher somewhere. I can't, I can't remember exactly uh, where, but she when she came in, she didn't realise the power of the words the prime minister thinks or the prime minister has decided. And for all, you know, we can talk about civil service sort of, you know, foot dragging or, you know, the yes minister cliches. But actually, when the prime minister has decided something, that is an immensely powerful signal to the civil service that, you know, that can be then executed more or less effectively. Um, But any uh, sense of, uh, you know, separation between different parts of uh, uh, number 10 or between Steve Barclay's chief of staff and the prime minister, as the others were saying, will, will... create confusion in the civil service and a sort of, you know, in a, in a benign world, um, confusion and things uh, being uh, less uh, efficient or effective uh, and uh, potentially the opportunity for people with particular agendas to, to exploit that. So, I mean, I, I agree with everything, um, everything that, that Kate and Gavin were saying. I mean, the sort of, the can it work question, including uh, with the civil service, um, I, I think it, I think it can work. Um, and I think, uh, Steve Barclay has the, some of the qualities that would uh, enable it to work, a sort of you know, careful precision around how you navigate some of these cross pressures. I think, I think there are, I mean, Cameron mentioned there the, the parliamentary accountability. I think it's going to be really uh, tricky. I mean, goodness knows what they're thinking in number 10 about how to deal with question time and select committees and things like mm. that. They'll need to find a mechanism that makes that that makes that maybe, work. Maybe it means Barclay gets to turn up at the liaison committee with Johnson. Yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a serious interesting book. I mean, as I'm, I was in a really interesting position. So Kate was drawing the distinction between being a minister and being a senior special advisor. And obviously, I went from being the housing minister mm. and an MP and having my own voice mm. to doing the a role very similar to the one that she did. And I was Robbie Gibb used to constantly try and persuade the PM to let me do media interviews. 
because his argument was, well, half the cabinet are not particularly supportive of our line and get Gavin out there. He would at least like loyally pursue the line and pro- prosecute it. And in the end, it only happened once, which was on the very last day. Um, and because the, the civil servants were always very clear, there's a very dangerous road to go down if you put the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff out on the media. And then in the end, on her last day, uh, they cleared me doing the Today programme that day. Um, so that that ability of the media and MPs to get after the person that's in that position, you know, that people are going to have a lot of fun with that aspect. One further thought is, is, I think there's a little, an interesting little paradox here. And I think it does happen with administrations that get into trouble or find themselves in a weak position, which is that if Steve Barclay does make it work, he will be incredibly powerful yeah. in the system mm. because mm. he'll be chief of staff, he'll have the voice of the prime minister and he'll be a minister and so can direct civil servants and uh, have his own uh, uh, sort of, you know, ministerial bulwark, as, as it were. So, uh, and, I, and I do think this is almost a bit of a feature of the... Uh, it's, too, it's preemptive to say dying days of administration. It's the end of administrations when uh, lots of people have left the building uh, and the few that remain then actually have a, a, a really uh, significant influence over both sort of policy and uh, presentation uh, in, you know, from the centre. Well, just, I mean, we've talked quite a lot about the Chief of Staff, but you should remember there are others coming in. Um, Kate, we've got a new Director of Comms as well, Gito Harry. Um, were you surprised that he kicked off his first day in the job by giving interviews? Gavin, I think I can hear you <laughs> laughing as well. Not at all. It was, it was, it was a high-risk and highly entertaining first day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we all had a bit, a bit of a laugh. After all the sort of slightly sad week before, maybe maybe he was trying to cheer us all up. I did. So I'm sure that's not what number 10 had in mind. But, I mean, look, Gute Howie has worked for Boris before so in a way it's a mm. good thing to bring someone in that he trusts back to the point I was making earlier about you know you do want to see a bunch of people in number 10 who trust each other who are loyal to each other who can just shut the door and talk out a decision and not read about it in the paper and um, Guido has has had that relationship before so maybe that's the beginning of a, of a, a good new new start on the comms side. And I mean, on that point, because this isn't just about resetting number 10 so that it works more effectively for the prime minister, there's been a big push from the party here. So we've also got um, a new head of the policy unit, Andrew Griffith, who is also an MP, uh, and four new parliamentary private secretaries. So those are the sort of key link person between the prime minister, well, along with the chief whip, along with uh, the leader of the house. In fact, there's a lot of links, uh, but they are a key link between the prime minister and the backbenchers. Uh, Gavin, do you, do you think this is going to work for him in terms of that reset with the party that they're looking for? Or is it a bit of a late in the day for that? So the fundamental question is whether Boris Johnson is going to change. Mm. You, know, you can you can surround yourself with the absolute best people that are out there, but if you keep making mistakes, then ultimately it's not going to make a, a difference. And I think that's that's the key thing here. You know, I, I gave the example earlier, and I know you don't want to go into the detail of it, but the the remark he made about Keir Starmer, mm. he was advised by people not to do that. And he still did it. So this this statement just over a week ago that was meant to be the moment where he came to Parliament, showed contrition, tried to draw a line under this story, he actually dug himself in worse, mm. made his problems more difficult. So, you know, even even if these advisors proved to be better people than the people that were doing the jobs previously, and it is worth reflecting that if you take Dan Rosenfeld as an example, he was brought in to clear up the previous mess. Yeah. Um 
So we've been around this loop once before. But even if they prove to be very high quality people, ultimately, this is about whether Boris Johnson is capable of changing the way in which he runs number 10. And let me give you, let me give you a, uh, a pro and a con to be, to be balanced and to be fair. I think that there was a period when he was mayor of London, when he first had Simon Milton and then Eddie Lister uh, as chief of staff uh, at the GLA, where it actually did work effectively for him, for the party. Uh, it was a good structure that got the best out of him. So it's possible. Um, the other side of the, uh, I think that I would put is that on those very rare occasions where Mrs. Barwell isn't very happy with me, I I promise her that I will try and do better. But I, I, I sometimes just sort of point out that I am now 50 years old and it's not easy to change. <laughs> you know, I think you get to a certain age in life and some of your habits are quite deep ingrained in you. So it's not going to be an easy thing for him to change. And I think that one of the, I mean this not as a criticism, one of the really hard things in politics is sometimes people begin to take against you for the things that they originally liked about you. Mm. Now, if I think back to when I first got interested in politics, when John Major took over from Margaret Thatcher, there was a sort of national mood that what we need is a little bit less charisma and just a calmer. And then within a few years, everyone was bored and wanted a change again. Uh, and so that, that I think, is one of the problems that he's got at the moment, that some of the things that people used to find funny and entertaining, maybe they're not finding so funny and entertaining anymore. And it's very difficult if that's, if that's who you are and that's the way you've always done politics. And people are now saying, well, we don't like that. We want it different. That's not easy. Mm. Can I jump on the back of that? Because I think it's such a good point. I mean, in the end, Boris is one of those prime ministers who sort of the nation fell in love with. Now, that a bit like Blair, if you like. Um, and I think it, it, that's great, or must be great if you're him. And, you know, we see this amazing election result in, in 2019. Um, but I think there is a danger um, when you then fall out in love um, that you, that it's difficult to sort of win back, that it's not based on convenience or a bit of respect or, yeah, your, your, your offer is what I need, all of that. So there is a danger here that, that, that Boris can't sort of reignite that support in the country and in the end I think that the question I think it is can he change but I think the other question is you know does he still have the support in the country because those red wall MPs seem to me to be how they feel and how safe they they feel because Boris put together his own coalition to win it was very much a bespoke Boris coalition it wasn't at all like the coalition to win that we had in the Cameron years and I think that question for the party, which is difficult, is can can they win those seats with Boris or can they win them without? Or which one is the more risky, the risky path? So I think, again, if Boris doesn't pick up in the polls, his political position feels still quite fragile. On the, mm. um, on the can Boris Johnson change point, I think there's, on, on the positive side of the ledger, and, you know, it was shortly after Dan Rosenfield uh, came in and Dominic Cummings had left. I think the most successful in government terms period of this government was from about February last year to about September yeah. last year. And it was based around a clear exit plan from COVID or not exit plan, but sort of opening up plan that was published, I think, in February or March last year that had a series of clear milestones that more or less the Prime Minister and the government kept to. And that gave a sort of structure to the government and to decision-making hanging, hanging off it. Okay, it was a bit easier than than, than uh, perhaps going into the pandemic or some of the other more 
um, uh, deeper underlying policy uh, problems because it was a good news story. But that suddenly it felt it felt for sort of six months there was a really functional number 10 happening there and a government that, mm. that, that has come come un, unthreaded so I, I guess the question is whether he can find a a way of getting back to that sort of um, the, I mean the only thing that I would say about that is that that was also the period in which they were on again off again about what they would do about social care which is a huge issue um, you know that was also the time that you needed to start thinking through some of the other long-term challenges coming out of COVID that we're now seeing, you know, this week, uh, including the impact on cost of living, impact on inflation, impact on uh, the NHS backlog, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, That brings me to another question, because we've been talking about number 10, very much about the prime minister, about almost the bunker, you know, how it works internally, how it works with the party. But this is also about how it works across government. And segue here. I want to talk about the other big announcement, which was the creation of a new office of the Prime Minister. Footnote, it's already called the Prime Minister's Office. Um, But Alex, do we have any sense of what form this will take? And is it going to change those bigger issues about how the centre of government operates and whether we effectively do government, uh, you know, on those big issues? Seamless, Kath. Uh, Seamless. Brilliant. Yeah, um, uh, yeah we, we, we don't know that much yet. So um, the Prime Minister uh, announced this creation of a, an office of the Prime Minister. Um, our, you know, fairly clear sense that it was an announcement in need of detail. <laughs> so, uh, that doesn't mean it's not important. Uh, it doesn't mean it, it, it won't change government. But I think there's a sort of, there's a whole spectrum of uh, approaches that, um, that, that Johnson could take from effectively a rebranding exercise so you keep number 10 uh, as it is but you call it an office of the prime minister you might make it a department give it a permanent secretary have steve barkley in there as a a ministerial head as well as the chief of staff as we've been saying Uh, but basically a rebranding exercise all the way through to what would be quite a profound change at the center of government to create a large office of the prime minister that um, is a department geared towards the prime minister and has quite a lot of the functions that exist in the cabinet office at the moment. So there are some questions for the, you know, for the Whitehall uh, geeks amongst us to think about, do the cabinet secretariats that currently broker policy move across from the cabinet office into number 10? If so, that changes their character quite a lot, because at the moment they serve the whole cabinet, although they're very focused on the prime minister. If they're set in an organisation that is totally geared towards the prime minister, that changes things. Does that function shift? How does the national security apparatus that's currently sitting in the cabinet office that links the Ministry of Defence and uh, the security services together, does that carry on sitting in the cabinet office? Uh, the Prime Minister is absolutely the minister that, that, that is closest to, to that sort of um, work. Uh, and then does what, what remains of the cabinet office, is it simply then the sort of corporate HQ of government? Does it get sidelined? Um, uh, the sort of issues that we at the Institute for Government care about, civil service reform and others are, you know, all good stuff, but they're they're shunted off uh, somewhere much further from the centre of power. Where does the cabinet secretary sit? Do they move mm. into the office of the prime minister? Do they stay in the cabinet office? Does that mean they're sidelined? So once you um, once you pull at one of the threads of uh, reorganising the centre of government, like there's quite a lot of stuff needs to be thought through. Yeah. Um, Gavin, sorry, were you going to jump in? No, go on, go on. I was going to say, I mean, because the constitutional um, expert in me. The big issue here is about what it means for cabinet governments. And sometimes that's all, you know, pie in the sky kind of idealistic stuff. But that relationship between cabinet office and number 10, it's very nuanced. Um, but there is something to it that officials in the cabinet office see themselves as serving the cabinet, albeit, um, I can't remember actually, somebody put it very well of like, you know, 
almost doing the job of the prime minister, but serving the cabinet or something like that. But what does it look like from number 10? Do you see the cabinet office as very much a different creature or part of your world? I think my view was that it was kind of semi-detached. Um, and David Liddington's job, and Kate may well say that Oliver Letwin performed a very similar function uh, in the government she served in, but we kind of relied on David Liddington to use some of that infrastructure to deliver some of the things that we uh, wanted. I mean, there is an irony here, which is that this this reform has come out of anger among Conservative MPs about the way in which the Prime Minister has been running the government, mm. and the outcome of it might be a more powerful Prime Minister within yeah. that government and less power for the cabinet, you know, the Prime Minister, more exactly as Alex was describing. That would be quite ironic, to put it mildly. Um, but if we were at one of the more, uh, if we were at the more radical end of the spectrum that Alex is describing, then that's that's what the effect would be uh, of the change. But I, I would say, of the various things that the cabinet office did, some felt quite central to, you know, oh gosh, I'm now remembering these horrible acronyms. Was it EUXTSN? <laughs> that was the key cabinet committee that was was in charge of the sort of Brexit negotiation strategy. The secretariat for that was really quite fundamental to what we were trying to do. That was very close to us. Some of the constitutional stuff was something Theresa cared very strongly about. And other other bits of it were less directly relevant to the day-to-day things that we were focused on. But mm. um, for most of the – I overlapped a bit with Damien Green and then with David Liddington, both of whom were sort of strong personalities of the PM. And, and so we kind of felt, well, we've got, we've got one of our key lieutenants next door who's sort of looking after that stuff for us. It wasn't part of number 10, but it was very closely connected to it. And I mean, Kate, for, in your time, obviously, coalition government, you had an actual deputy prime minister with a, a proper deputy role. Um, and, and coalition government was very central to, to what the cabinet office were doing as well. So was it similar? Did it feel, you know, that semi-distant approach? Well, I was about to say, I think for me, the cabinet office equaled Nick Clegg, mm. <laughs> which I think puts a slightly different um, uh, illustration of it. But yes, through there, there are these rather strange doors, anyone who, who knows number 10, which are a bit like Star Trek. And um, there was always a sign in our day saying, do not let the cat through the door. And I thought actually you could it would sort of stop a few other people coming through as well. But yeah, at the heart, I mean, it's an important relationship. I mean, Jeremy... Um, Hayward, when he moved to become cabinet secretary, he, he offered very much a role as a broker, as in the coalition. And of course, in our time in government, we, we invented the, the quad at the centre, which became actually a very good way of, of it started as a, as, a, as a way of getting the budget done. And then it became so successful at sort of um, deciding business between the coalition partners that we continued it. And, and I think of the cabinet officers really being almost like a secretariat to the coalition, to that quad. But policy again, as Gavin said, um, Oliver Letwin was there, and he would he would do a lot of brokering of of policy. And then, of course, um, if anything went wrong, you know, CT national security mm. always knew um, you had to worry when there certain people came through. My, David Cameron used to call them the deep state <laughs> came running through the door. So for me, that's what the cabinet office was. But I have, I feel a bit sceptical about this Prime Minister's office idea because I think we've seen um, come and go over the years, you know, the, the principal private job at number 10, either be a director general level or permanent secretary level. And we were talking just earlier about, does that mean it's, it's more senior or just the person doing it is more senior? And I think the thing they have to sort out in number 10 is, what is everyone doing? Mm. And 
are we working together as a group and can we trust each other? And they should try and solve that, I think, is, you know, point one on their action list. Alex, I mean, if anyone's listening, say, uh, chairman of a select committee who's been critical of the prime minister and whose job is to look at constitutional reform and public administration, what would you say to them are the things they should be looking out for about, you know, any risk in the rush to reform um, too quickly on this? Mr. Rag, are you out there? Um, uh, yes, I mean, it, it goes to what, what, um, what Kate and Kevin were saying, what I said, what, what I said earlier. I think, I think a really interesting question is, what is left of the cabinet office? Is that a functional department? What is it doing? I mean, uh, it, it had already lost some of its fu- functions to Michael Gove in terms of the union, which is obviously central to this government's agenda. So uh, as the committee, uh, the um, uh, PRACAC, uh, William Bragg's committee, um, uh, one of their central jobs is to scrutinise the cabinet office. So uh, th- they've got a, a job to do there. I think the points that you uh, uh, were making about the uh, constitutional consequences of an office of the Prime Minister and whether it uh, increases uh, or reduces the Prime Minister's uh, power and how that plays across the system. I don't think it's necessary. necessarily, we tend to make reforms like this at moments of crisis or political uh, weakness. Uh, there's nothing essentially wrong with that. There's, they're, they're, the, they're the moments when people kind of coalesce around change. The Cabinet Office was created in a war. so Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it's not inherently wrong to do this in response to a uh, to, to a particular moment of uh, jeopardy, but um, uh, but but that it's 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 those sort of organisational things, and I think the because um, uh, while uh, you can make an argument, and you know, we have done that, the centre of government is uh, too weak in some respects. Uh, so much is centralised, and so much of British government looks towards the Prime Minister and Number Ten. Changes to the wiring there have an outsized difference across the rest of the system. So the relationships, uh, as we've been talking about, that the, the 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 culture that is determined by the incentives and the structures that operate in that crucible right at the heart of government have real world consequences for policy, for the way decisions are made, for the way that they're implemented. So I think if I was if I was trying to get into it as a select committee or as the Institute for Government, it's uh, looking at how the wiring and the structures and the incentives that are being set up potentially in haste, are going to play out, ripple out across the rest of the system. Yeah, a very important point. Ain't no reset like a number 10 reset. Um, That is probably where we will leave it. We will come back when we hear more, no doubt, about what is being planned for number 10 and the new office of the Prime Minister. Thank you all for listening at home. Thank you to Alex Thomas and especially to Kate Fall and Gavin Barwell for sharing your insights. Do keep an eye out for more great IFG live content heading your way. We have Sir John Major, uh, now somebody who knows how number 10 works. Uh, he's giving a speech. Its title is In Democracy We Trust? Question uh, mark at the IFG this week. And we'll be putting out the audio for that. Uh, and you can listen to all our IFG podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, or any other platform of your choice. And please do leave us a review. In the meantime, we'll be keeping a very close eye on number 10 and whether Boris Johnson's reset works. And if it doesn't, then who gets the blame? See you next time. Thank you for listening. And we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk events. Thank you.